doctors often deal with immediate symptoms to a problem before they're able to reach the underlying issue. So someone is taken to the emergency room, they're given some medication to take the swelling down to calm the fever, and then the doctor gets to work to prescribe the actual problem, to diagnose what's going on. And in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has done this for a broken and troubled church. He's looked at this disease assembly and handled a number of issues confronting them, giving the immediate remedy to the problem. But in chapter 15, he gets down to the core issue. He gives a diagnosis, he prescribes treatment, and he shows them that their lack of belief in a physical resurrection of the dead undergirds many of the missteps of the assembly so far. Throughout the letter, he's referenced this eschatological age when saints would rise from the dead, when they would rule, when they would be together, united once again. And in this way, the resurrection really provides a key theme for the entire letter. So throughout, he's connecting their disbelief in a bodily resurrection to their problems. And now he's showing that the resurrection of the dead is really rooted in the resurrection of Christ. So Jesus's rising from the dead serves as the means by which all those who believe in him will also rise from the dead and his resurrection serves as the model by which we can understand our own resurrection. So there were indeed in that day philosophical assumptions that would have worked in favor of disbelief in a physical resurrection primarily the assumption that at death, the soul would be freed from the imprisonment of the body. And so anyone hearing about a physical resurrection of the dead would have thought that this is bizarre nonsense. Why would we once again imprison the soul that's finally escaped at death? In our own day, belief in a physical resurrection from the dead is challenged, partly because of a movement, a theological movement that argued for a spiritual resurrection of Christ and of the dead, but not a physical resurrection of the dead. But then that notion is challenged all the more as our society prizes the inner person over against the outer person. And so if our inner person ever disagrees with our bodily sensations, the thing that needs to change is the outer person. So whether that's your conception of gender or sexuality or anything else, if the inner man disagrees with the outer man, change the outer man, the body doesn't really matter. It's temporal. It's not going to last. So add this elevation of the inner person over against the outer person. The inner person is the real me to a culture that just doesn't believe in the supernatural at all. And the resurrection of the dead sounds more akin to a zombie apocalypse than it does paradise. So for this reason, Paul's extended argument in chapter 15 for a bodily resurrection is really helpful and instructive for us today, just as it was for the Corinthians in their day. Now in this chapter, we're just going to look at one slice of it today, but we have to keep the whole chapter in mind because the whole chapter is an argument for a bodily resurrection. He begins by laying the foundation for the resurrection, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ's own resurrection. 
verses 1 through 11. This is the text we'll consider today. But we have to be careful not to take it as a standalone unit. So it's really easy to look at this text and ignore the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. This text is the foundation for everything else in 1 Corinthians 15. So he lays the foundation of the gospel. And then he goes on in verses 12 through 34 to comment and argue for the significance of the resurrection. And then finally in verses 35 through 38, he describes and unwraps the nature of the resurrection. We don't want to look at this all in one day here or else we'd be here for a couple of hours. And while I would be fine with that, I'm not sure that all of the children in our midst or the parents of those children would be. And so I'm going to help you out by looking at just the first section of Paul's argument. And then you help me out by coming next week, remembering that this is part of a larger argument. So as Paul lays out the foundation for the resurrection, the gospel In verse two, he points out that the gospel is really also the foundation of our faith. So he begins with the foundation of our faith, the gospel. So he introduces his argument in this way, writing in chapter 15, verse one. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he starts out here laying out that gospel proclamation, reminding them that he had already declared that that they had received it and that it is the means by which they are being saved unless they had believed in vain. So that raises two questions for us. What does Paul mean by saying the gospel by which you are being saved? Isn't the gospel something by which we were saved? And then what does he mean by that phrase, unless you believed in vain? These can be troubling phrases for us. So notice first that Paul does not assure them that they have been saved in a past tense way only. He is not saying this. He's not saying you received the message and you have been saved. Instead, he emphasizes the present ongoing saving nature of the gospel. So it's a message on which you currently stand. It's the message by which you are presently being saved. So he certainly includes an eye to the past, but he focuses in here on the future. And that future focus is a reminder that there's something yet to come. There's an eye to the future when we will finally and fully be saved. So by phrasing it in this way, Paul points to what we've talked about over and over again in recent weeks, the reality that we're in this already not yet reality. So we are already saved, but we're not yet in heaven. Therefore, there's a need to be being saved right now. Christ has already conquered death, yet we still experience death. So there's a future day when death will finally be laid in the grave forever. So we remember that the the kingdom's here. We're in the kingdom, 
but the kingdom's yet to come. And so in this already not yet reality, we understand that our eschatological salvation, that final day when it fully comes, includes perseverance in the gospel and in belief now. So Paul does not want you to think about your faith as a static reality, something that you just don't think about that you gained from the past and that cancels out the need for present or future faith. So there are two errors that we need to guard against. Error number one, we need to guard against the error in the wrong belief that our works of righteousness are meritorious and that we can earn God's favor for salvation and our present sanctification. So what we believe about man, our anthropology, that we're sinful, reminds us that nothing we do earns favor before God. And in the event that you do something good and virtuous on your own account, when that action is presented to God on the final day in the day of judgment. It's nothing but a repulsive rag. It stinks. It does nothing to gain you God's favor. He doesn't smile on you because you're earning your salvation or your sanctification. So error number one is believing that your works bring you into God's favor. Don't believe that. That's wrong. But in response to that, I'll call out Protestants gen generally here, but I think especially us Baptists who have more of a reformed theology, we could fall into the equally bad error, the wrong belief that because salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Faith becomes a static, once-in-a-moment action that no longer has any bearing on our life or how we live. Obedience to God in the presence, perseverance in the faith is unnecessary. That's a wrong belief that tends to pendulum swing to try to correct from the Roman Catholic error that you can earn your salvation through some sacrament or good work. What we need to understand is that laziness and apathy is not a work of God's grace, but is instead an anesthesia that numbs our pain on the way to hell. We don't drift into God's favor. We don't claim Christ in an intellectual sense and forget about him. We must persevere. So avoiding the error on the one hand that works save us and avoiding the error on the other hand that because grace saves us, we no longer need to persevere in the faith. We need to come to reality. And the reality is that our salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, purchased by the blood of Christ for the purpose of reflecting Christ as we look forward to that final day. So Paul will make these points along the way, but what becomes clear immediately in the language that he uses of being saved presently is that our faith is to be an active reality in the present. So while our initial reception of the gospel is in the past, we must not ignore the need to hold fast to the gospel message in the present as we await our future salvation. So we need to think more 
carefully about the ways that we can subtly be led astray from persevering in the gospel. First, we need to avoid believing that the gospel is something that belongs to our past only. It is not as if our acceptance of the gospel marked our entrance into the Christian life, and now we can either A, move on to deeper things and forget the gospel, or B, just say that we have God's stamp of approval and forgiveness for living however we please. This misses the reality that our salvation is not yet final. It forgets where we are in the already not yet, and it ignores our present need for the gospel and its holistic saving work. So avoid the error of believing that the gospel belongs to the past. The gospel is for everyday life. Second, we need to avoid the error of believing that the gospel is something we need only on occasion in the present moment. We need the gospel for every moment in the present, not simply on occasion, just when we really royally mess up or if we're really having a hard time, that's when we go to the gospel. We need the gospel for every moment of our lives. So we need the gospel and God's grace, not just for salvation, but for our sanctification. Then third, we need to avoid believing that the gospel is primarily about what will happen in the future. Now, this error of saying that the gospel is mostly about what happens in the future is often connected with the error of believing that the gospel is just something in my past. We kind of put the two together. I prayed a prayer once, and the gospel really has only impact on the final day. It's my fire insurance. It's my ticket into heaven. And so I prayed the prayer, future glory down the road. That's all the gospel does. Instead, we need to understand that the gospel encompasses our past, our present, and our future salvation experience because Christ, through the gospel, is actively engaging us in his saving work. In the same way that God doesn't press pause on his saving work in the present, we ought not to press pause on our obedience and perseverance in the gospel in the present. We are to be enlivened by grace, connected by faith in the here and now as we remember the past and look to the future. Hopefully that helps explain why Paul talks about being saved instead of just a past tense, you were saved. But what about that phrase, unless you believed in vain? This phrase is, the footnote, if you're looking at the Christian standard Bible shows, also renders it believed without careful thought. And I think that's the idea here. In other words, unless you just received this gospel, sort of this cultural whatever, and you never actually gave thought to it, you just received it in a thoughtless way. Or you received it with the kind of faith that happens in passing. This reminds us of the parables of Christ, doesn't it? You think of the parable of the soils in Luke 8, where there was just this initial fluttering of belief that gave way to the dying of the plant. Again, Paul reminds us that faith might be expressed in a moment of time, but true faith, enduring faith, will press on in perseverance as it's intimately and actively connected to the object of faith, Jesus Christ. And so as Christ is active in continuing to save us, our faith in him ought to remain active. 
because a faith disconnected from the active work of Christ is a useless believing in vain. So Paul starts out here as he introduces this, showing that the foundation of our faith is the gospel. So it's almost as if he's picturing building a house here. The foundation of your faith is the gospel. The cornerstone of that foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if the foundation of our faith is the gospel, the foundation of that foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verses three and four. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So here in a nutshell is the gospel, the bird's eye view. It's essentially what we just sang in the gospel song. Now this gospel was not original to Paul. It's a message that he received and that he had passed on. It's not a tradition that can be tampered with or changed by Christians down the road. Now the content of this gospel comes with two major ideas and then two supporting ideas. The first major idea is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the second idea that he was raised. And then there's the supporting ideas that he was buried and that his resurrection was on the third day. So let's begin with that first phrase, Christ. Who is Christ? He is the royal Messiah. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, according to the scriptures here, I don't think Paul has in mind one proof text, but the entire movement of the Old Testament as a movement that proclaims the coming Messiah and is a witness of his death and resurrection. I think Isaiah 53, what Josh read to us, is a really good example of this witness of the scriptures of the Messiah who would die for sins and then be raised on the third day. But what does it mean that the Messiah died and that he died for our sins. We have to remember the beginning of the ancient scriptures of the Hebrew Bible where death comes as a result of sin. Death comes though as an intruder. It's not a part of the good created order. It's an intruder that must be defeated. And just as Adam and Eve ought to have exercised dominion over the garden and protected it from that serpent, so too death now needs to be kicked out of the garden. Death needs to be conquered. It's an intruder that needs to be kicked out. But death came because of sin. And as a result, our very moment of birth in this world begins our progression towards death. Furthermore, as we're born into this world, we're born spiritually in a state of death, such that death is all that we are and it's our unavoidable future. Yet Christ died for our sins and in his death, he defeats death and sin that brings death into this world. So he died for our sins. This is a substitutionary idea. We deserve death because of our sin. Christ died on our behalf for our sins so that we don't have to face eternal death in judgment from God. But in that substitution where death is taken away in sin, righteousness and life are applied. 
And so we sing songs like his robes for mine that picture Christ's righteousness being placed on us as he takes our filthy robes of sin. Christ's death then did what we cannot do. It atones for our sins as a sacrifice on our behalf. But then Christ who died for our sins was buried. What's the significance of inserting that Christ was buried? The significance is that it's proof of his death. He actually died. So Christ died and was put in a tomb. The gospel accounts record this. The witnesses record this. He was buried because he was dead. It appeared then that death won, that death had the victory. But we pause and say, no, he didn't. Because as Paul records here, after he was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So in Christ's resurrection, he defeats death. Why is this important? It's important because without the resurrection, there's no reason to think that Christ's crucifixion did anything. There's no reason to think without the resurrection that Christ dealt with death or sin. But as he comes to life, exercising victory over death, he proves that he's also exercised victory over sin. So just as when Jesus would sometimes heal somebody from a a physical malady, he would first declare your sins are forgiven. And there would be question, how does he have authority to do this? How would he prove it? He'd insert life into that person where part of that person was dead. They couldn't walk. They couldn't see when life came proof of the death of sin was given. And in his resurrection, he does the same thing. What is harder to do? From a human point of view, it's harder to raise from the dead. But that reality shows that the actual harder thing to do, the defeat of spiritual death has been done as well. So this happened on the third day, according to the scriptures. Again, this general sweeping movement of the Old Testament that points us to a Messiah who would defeat death and rise again. I think it's important for us to pause and reflect that this gospel message is according to the scriptures for two reasons. This is important, number one, because it establishes the prophetic authority that attests to who Christ is. So Jesus himself gave signs and miracles. The testings of prophecy were that they came true and Christ shows that he is the truest prophet, the truest witness to God. He is God himself. And connecting that reality to this testimony that had existed for thousands of years is really, really important. I think on a more personal level, though, we need to think about the connection of the gospel message to the ancient scriptures because it connects us into something that's much bigger than us. In American Christianity, it's very easy to connect the story of our lives to the story of America, to the latest Netflix thriller, or perhaps even an Amish romance novel. But Paul here points us to connect the story of our lives to the story of the gospel that's part of the larger story of the world recorded in the scripture. So the script that we read and that we live out the drama of our lives by 
is not a story that's told anywhere else. It's a story that's told in the ancient scriptures and that comes to its climactic height in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. So as we live out the story of our lives told by the grander story of scripture, we fight against the temptation to live out our story in identification with something else. We tell ourselves stories and say, this is what life ought to be. We look at stories and say, this is who I am. And when we do that, we shape our identity. Well, Paul is giving us a story to read ourselves into. And it's not the story of contemporary life now. It's an ancient witness to the Messiah in the scriptures. And as we can say, the gospel is about connecting me to God's redemptive plan throughout history. It disconnects us from the temporary concerns and value systems and identifications of this world. It reminds us that you and I have much more in common with someone who lives 200,000 miles away from us in 2,000 years ago than it does with someone who looks just like us now. It brings us into greater fellowship and union and joy with someone who lives a totally different life in a totally different time than we do. And so we don't need to find our value system in something that this world put forward. We don't compare ourselves to other people to know what it means to live a meaningful life. We read the story of scripture and say, there is the story I live by. There is where hope is found ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the message of the gospel. So instead of working out the drama of your life, primarily in terms of the American story or of a fiction story or of a television show. We must live out the story of our lives in terms of God's story and the story of his people across the globe and throughout time. So Paul presses on and passes on this gospel message once again, according to the scriptures, the kind of message that we don't have the authority to tamper with or change. So again, in his argument for the resurrection, he begins with the gospel is the foundation of our faith. The foundation of that foundation, the cornerstone of the gospel is the resurrection. But then the verification of the resurrection is the, wit the eyewitnesses who saw Christ. So the resurrection was not relegated to a spiritual resurrection only, nor was it a myth or a fable generated by a few. The strongest proof of the resurrection, the strongest validation of the resurrection is that the risen Lord appeared to witnesses who could testify that Jesus was raised from the dead. So Paul describes some of the appearances of Christ post-resurrection, not all, there are more recorded in the gospel, but these are the relevant ones for the Corinthian church. Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. That's his shorthand for they died, but they died with hope. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
So these, resur these resurrection appearances serve as authentication of the resurrection of Christ. So Paul's writing this letter to the church in probably mid-50s AD. That means people are alive who saw the risen Christ. The implication of this list is that if you doubt that Jesus rose from the dead, you can go and talk to someone who saw him. So you can personally inquire about the resurrection appearances of Christ to those who saw him altogether. Eyewitness testimony is really, really important. And just because these eyewitnesses are now dead, we shouldn't dismiss their testimony. This raises then the question of objective and subjective evidence for the resurrection of Christ. What do we lean into? Well, subjective evidence is this way of knowing personally, perhaps even emotionally, and is best illustrated in that song that says, you ask me how I know he lives. You're asking me for a proof of the resurrection. This is how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That's a subjective knowing. It's your personal experience of the resurrection power of Christ. Objective knowing, objective evidence is eyewitness testimony. It's an empty tomb. It's historical fact. I think that we need to lean into both objective historical evidence and subjective evidence. I sense Christ working in me as we foster and bolster our faith in the resurrection. However, your subjective evidence Christ lives within my heart. This is how I know he rose from the dead is really limited to your own experience. And on some level does little to differentiate the truth of Christianity in your experience from the experience of someone else in whatever belief system it might be. And so we want to say our experience of Christ is real. It's meaningful and we should lean into it as reality However, as we engage with others who may be able to describe a similar experience that has been cultivated by another belief system, we need to lean into the primary objective evidence for the resurrection. And here, Paul lays it out as the eyewitnesses who saw the Lord post-resurrection. The amount of witnesses, these 500 brothers and sisters, leans the evidence not in favor of some hallucination or a myth or a fable to protect their message by the apostles alone. There were many, many eyewitnesses, and I think that we should, on the basis of these eyewitnesses, accept that Christ was raised from the dead. Paul then, in the next verses, brings these two ways of knowing objective and subjective evidence together as he talks about his own encounter with the risen Christ. Now, when Paul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, there were others there who certainly witnessed some, but they didn't see the same thing Paul saw. And so Paul, as he goes on to articulate his belief in the resurrection, leans into both objective and subjective ways of knowing. He writes there in verse 8, Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So we think of the road to Damascus appearance of Christ to Paul. Now Paul equates the 
authenticity of the witness of the risen Christ that he experienced to that of the apostles. And he implies that no one else should expect to see the Lord in the same way. So for the Corinthian church, they had experienced all these spiritual gifts. Some them, you're not going to see the, the Lord in the same way that I did. I saw the Lord in, as one in the end times you saw this. But he uses that phrase, as to one born at the wrong time. What does that phrase mean? I think there are three ideas and it probably could be any one of them. But first we might take this phrase to mean that Paul just simply belonged to an earlier time and that his encounter with Christ was unusual because he was a late witness to Christ. So in other words, he might have been saying something like, I really belonged to an earlier decade. You know, I was one as one who was born at the wrong time. I don't think this is how we should take it though, because number one, Paul's physical birth isn't a question here. He's the same age as many of the other witnesses of Christ's resurrection. And so he's not saying I was just born in the wrong decade or something like that. But then furthermore, the term that's used here that's rendered as one born at the wrong time really actually conveys the idea of a miscarriage or an abortion or a premature birth or some other abnormality at birth. And so it's just a Greek term that's used that's used in the context of miscarriage, abortion, or premature birth. So that information provides a second and probably better way that we might take the phrase. So we might better understand it to mean that Paul had an unusual spiritual birth. So he might be saying something like, whereas the other apostles walked with the Lord pre-death and resurrection and were able to go through a gestation period of sorts, I had a sudden appearance of Christ and I was sort of born as a premature Christian baby. So in this way, in this spiritual birth, he was prematurely born he saw the risen Lord. He came out not fully developed, blinded, totally dependent on others to wean him into the faith. So one born at the wrong time, one born prematurely might just refer to the unusual circumstances of Paul's conversion. I think that this would be a fine way to take it. A third option though, is just to simply understand Paul is saying that he was essentially as one who was a premature baby, given no chance to live, yet Christ miraculously gave him new life. In this way, we would connect the phrase to the phrase in the Greek Old Testament in Job, where Job talks about how it would have been better if he was born as a stillborn baby who had never lived. Paul may simply be saying, because I was one actively fighting against God's work on this earth. I was essentially as a dead one with no chance of survival or life, yet Christ miraculously saved me when he appeared to me. Whatever the case, we get Paul's point. His conversion to Christ and the life that came from it was only because of the true resurrection of Christ and his encounter with the risen Lord. Nevertheless, this premature birth caused Paul to describe himself in verse nine as inferior to the other apostles. He writes, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And I think that's why the last option there is probably in view. He sees himself as unworthy because not only did he falter in belief as the other apostles had pre-resurrection, he actually was fully opposed to God 
until he met the risen Christ. But then he goes on, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we proclaimed and you believed. And in this is Paul's testimony of the transforming grace of the gospel. We read of it here. We hear saints throughout history who say the same thing. We think of John Newton who said very similarly, I am not what I used to be, yet I'm not what I ought to be. I am what I am by the grace of God. When God's grace meets us in Christ, it's an empowering, transforming, new life supplying grace. As such, we must then allow the gospel to be central in our lives, to be the orienting, directing power in our lives. If we strive or if we seek for strength, for persevering in the faith and in obedience to God in anything else, that thing will eventually collapse under the weight of our sin. It's only the grace of God in the gospel that can allow us to persevere and to pursue him in sanctification and obedience and holiness. So if you make essential oils or a cup of coffee or a pint of beer or an exercise routine or a career path or a blog with 12 steps to better you to be the gravitational force in your life or the thing that you lean on to make you a better person, you're going to strive forward without any hope because that thing will simply implode and you're going to go along with it. The steps to becoming a better me is a step to set aside myself in favor of Christ. To no longer rely on who I am and what I've done and turn to the Christ who's taken our sin and done what we could never do. And while God does give us various rituals and practices and activities and helps to boost us along the way in our sanctification. We should never become deceived in thinking that the power for lasting change and perseverance is in a tool alone. It's only the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then Paul reminds his readers in this final phrase, whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. The power is not in the one who proclaimed the message, but in the object of faith. So the implicit call is believe in the gospel. Put your hope in Christ. Repent of your sins and persevere in him. So we try to keep this introduction to his argument in view. This argument that the gospel is the foundation for our belief in the resurrection reminds us that our only hope in life and in death is the resurrection of Christ. So as you face the troubles of this life and the spiritual manifestations of death that we encounter along the way, 
And as we look ahead and know that death is unavoidable for every one of us, the hope that we have is in the resurrection of Christ. So in your fear, in your suffering, in your failure, always return to the resurrection of Christ because it is in this message alone that we have hope.